Chapters 47 through 49 of The Right Away by Gilbert Parker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter 47. One was taken and the other left. Rosalie carried to the hospital that afternoon a lighter heart than she had known for many a day. The sight of Joe Portugais' dogs had roused her out of the apathy which had been growing on her in this patient but hopeless watching beside her father. She had always a smile and a cheerful word for the poor man. A settled sorrow hung upon her face, however, taking away its color, but giving it a sweet gravity which made her slave more than one young doctor of the hospital, for whom, however, she showed no more than a friendly frankness free from self-consciousness. For hours she would sit in reverie beside her sleeping father, her heart over the water to Charlie. As in a trance she could see him sitting at his bench, bent over his work, now and again lifting up his head to look across to the post-office, where another hand than hers sorted letters now. Day by day her father weakened and faded away. All that was possible to medical skill had been done. As the money left by her mother dwindled she had no anxiety, for she knew that the life she so tenderly cherished would not outlast the gold which lengthened out the tenuous chain of being. This last illness of her father's had been the salvation of her mind, the saving of her health. Maybe it had been the saving of her soul, for at times a curious contempt of life came upon her, she who had loved it so eagerly and fully. There descended on her then the bitter conviction that never again would she see the man she loved then not even Mrs. Flynn could call back the fun of the world to her step and her tongue and her eye. At first there had been a timid shrinking, but soon her father and herself were brighter and better for the old Irish woman's presence, and she began to take comfort in Mrs. Flynn. Mrs. Flynn gave hopefulness to whatever life she touched, and Rosalie, buoyant and hopeful enough by nature, responded to the living warmth and the religion of life in the Irish woman's heart. "'Tis worth the doin' every bit of it, darlin', the bither and the sweet, the hard and the easy, the rough and the smooth, the good and the bad,' said Mrs. Flynn to her this very Easter morning. "'Even the evil is worth doin', if so be twas not meant, and the good is in your heart in the end, and ye be doin' turn up to the Almighty, repentin' and glad to be alive, provin' to him twas worth while makin' the world and you to want and worry and work and play and pick the flowers.' and bleed of the thorns and drink the sun and eat the dust and be lovin all the way ah that's it darlin persisted mrs flynn tis lovin all the way makes it easier there's many kinds of love there's laden lass there's maiden man and that last is spring and all the birds singin and storms now and then and separations and mistrust and god in heaven bein that easy with ye for bein fools and children and bringin ye together in the inn if so be ye do be lovin as man and maid should love with all your heart then there's the love of man and wife sure that's the love that lasts if it starts right sure it doesn't always start with the sun shinin will you marry me says teddy flynn to me i will says i then i'll come back from canady to fetch you says he with a tear in his eye for what's a man in old ireland that has a head for anything but puddities there's land free in Canada, and I'm going to make a home for ye, Mary, says he, waving a piece of paper in the air. Are ye then, says I. He goes away that night, 
and the next morning I have a letter from him, saying he startin' that day for Canada. He hadn't the heart to tell me face to face. What do I do then? I begs, borrows, and stales, and I reached that ship one minute before she sailed. There was no price aboard, but we was married six weeks after at Quebec, and together we lived with ups and downs, but no ups and downs to the love of us for twenty years, blessed be God for all his mercies. Rosalie had listened with eyes that hungrily watched every expression, ears that weighed eagerly every inflection, for she was hearing the story of another's love, and it did not seem strange to hear that a woman, old, red-faced, and fat, should be telling it. Yet there are times when she wept till she was exhausted, when all her girlhood was drowned in the overflow of her eyes, when there was a sense of irrevocable loss upon her. Then it was, in her fear of soul and pitiful loneliness, that her lover, the man she would have died for, seemed to have deserted her. Then it was that a sudden hatred against him rose up in her, to be swept away as swiftly as it came, by the memory of his broken tale of love, his passionate words. I have never loved anyone but you in all my life, Rosalie. And also there was that letter from Chaudier, which said that in the hour when the greatest proof of his love must be given, he would give it. Reading the letter again, hatred, doubt, even sorrow passed from her, and her imagination pictured the hour when, disguise and secrecy ended, he would step forward before all the world and say, I take thee, Rosalie Evanturel, to be my wife. Despite the gusts of emotion that swayed her at times, in the deepest part of her being she trusted him completely. When she reached the hospital this Sunday afternoon her step was quick, her smile bright, though she had not been to confession as was her duty on Easter Day. The impulse towards it had been great, but her secret was not her own, and the passionate desire to give relief to her full heart was overborne by thought of the man. Her soul was her own, but this secret of their love was his as well as hers. She knew that she was the only judge between. Soon after she entered the ward the chief surgeon said that all that could be done for her father had now been done, and that as M. Evanturel constantly asked to be taken back to Chaudier, he never said to die, though they knew what was in his mind. He might now make the journey, partly by river, partly by land. It seemed to the delighted and excited Rosalie that Joe Portugais had been sent to her as a surprise, and that his team of dogs was to take her father back. She sat by her father's bed this beautiful, wonderful Sunday morning, and talked cheerfully and laughed a little, and told Emma Vanterell of the dogs, and together they looked out of the window to the far-off hills, in their golden purple beyond which, in the valley of the Chaudier, was their little home. With her father's hand in hers, the girl dreamed dreams again, and it seemed to her that she was the very Rosalie Evanturel of old, whose thoughts were bounded by a river and a hill, a post-office and a church, a catechism and a few score of books. Here in the crowded city she had come to be a woman who, bitterly shaken in soul, knew life's sufferings, who had during the past few months read with avidity history, poetry romance, fiction, and the drama, English and French, for in every one she found something that said, You have felt that. In these long months she had learned more than she had known or learned in all her previous life. As she sat looking out into the eastern sky 
she became conscious of voices, and of a group of people who came slowly down the ward, sometimes speaking to the sick and crippled. It was not a general visitor's day, but one reserved for the few to come and say a kindly word to the suffering, to bring some flowers and distribute books. Rosalie had always been absent at this hour before, for she shrank from strangers, but to-day she stayed on unthinking. It mattered nothing to her who came and went. Her heart was over the hills, and the only tie she had here was with this poor cripple whose hand she held. If she did not resent the visit of these kindly strangers, she resolutely held herself apart from the object of their visit with a sense of distance and cold dignity. If she had given Charlie something of herself, she had in turn taken something from him, something unlike her old self, delicately non intimate. Knowledge of life had rationalized her emotions to a definite degree, had given her the pride of self-repression. She had need of it in these surroundings, where her beauty drew not a little dangerous attention, which she had held at arm's length. Her great love for one man made her invulnerable. Now, as the visitors came near, she did not turn towards them, but still sat, her chin on her hand, looking out across the hills, in resolute abstraction. She felt her father's fingers press hers, as if to draw her attention, for he, weak man, was ever ready to open his hand and heart to any friendly soul. She took no notice, but held his hand firmly, as though to say that she had no wish to see. She was conscious now that they were beside her father's bed. She hoped that they would pass. But no, the feet stopped. There was whispering, and then she heard a voice say, rather rude than another not one at that's plain the first a woman's the second a man's then another voice clear cold and well modulated said to her father they tell me you have been here a long time and have had much pain you will be glad to go i am sure something in the voice startled her some familiar sound or inflection struck upon her ear with a far-off note some lost tone she knew of what of whom did this voice remind her? She turned round quickly and caught two cold blue eyes looking at her. The face was older than her own, handsome and still, and happy in a placid sort of way. Few gusts of passion or of pain had passed across that face. The figure was shapely to the newest fashion, the bonnet was perfect, the hand which held two books was prettily gloved. Polite charity was written in her manner and consecrated every motion. On the instant Rosalie resented this fine epitome of convention, this dutiful charity-monger, herself the center of an admiring quartet. She saw the whispering, she noted the well-bred disguise of interest, and she met the visitor's gaze with cold courtesy. The other read the look in her face, and a slightly pacifying smile gathered at her lips. "'We are glad to hear that your father is better. He has been ill a long time?' Rosalie started again, for the voice perplexed her, rather not the voice, but the inflection, the deliberation. She bowed and set her lips, but chancing to glance at her father, she saw that he was troubled by her manner. Flashing a look of love at him, she adjusted the pillow under his head and said to her questioner in a low voice, "'He is better now. Thank you.' Encouraged, the other rejoined, May I leave one or two books for him to read, or for you to read to him? 
then added hastily, for she saw a curious look in Rosalie's eyes. "'We can have mutual friends in books, though we cannot be friends with each other. Books are the go-betweens of humanity.' Rosalie's heart leapt. She flushed, then grew slightly pale, for it was not tone or inflection alone that disturbed her now, but words themselves. A voice from over the hills seemed to say these things to her. A haunting voice from over the hills had said them to her, these very words. "'Friends need no go-betweens,' she said quietly, "'and enemies should not use them.' She heard a voice say, "'By Jove!' in a tone of surprise, as though it were wonderful the girl from Chaudier should have her wits about her. So Rosalie interpreted it. "'Have you many friends here?' asked the cold voice, meant to be kindly and pacific. It was schooled to composure, because it gave advantage in life's intercourse, not from any inner urbanity. Some need many friends, some but a few. I come from a country where one only needs few. "'Where is your country, I wonder?' said the cold echo of another voice. Charlie had passed out of Kathleen's life. He was dead to her, his memory scorned and buried. She loved the man to whom she supposed she was married. She was only too glad to let the dust of death and time cover every trace of Charlie from her gaze. She would have rooted out every particle of association. Yet his influence on her had been so great that she had unconsciously absorbed some of his idiosyncrasies, in the tone of his voice, in his manner of speaking. Today she had even repeated phrases he had used. "'Beyond the hills,' said Rosalie, turning away. "'Is it not strange?' said the voice. "'That is the title of one of the books I have just brought. "'Beyond the Hills. "'It is by an English writer. "'This other book is French. "'May I leave them?' "'Rosalie inclined her head. "'It would make her own position less dignified if she refused them. "'Books are always welcome to my father,' she said. "'There was an instant's pause as though the fashionable lady would offer her hand, "'but their eyes met and they only bowed. The lady moved on with a smile, leaving a perfume of heliotrope behind her. "'Where is your country, I wonder?' the voice of the lady rang in Rosalie's ears. As she sat at the window again, long after the visitors had disappeared, the words, "'I wonder, I wonder, I wonder,' kept beating in her brain. It was absurd that this woman should remind her of the tailor of Chaudier. Suddenly she was roused by her father's voice. "'This is beautiful, ah, but beautiful, Rosalie!' She turned towards him. He was reading the book in his hand, Beyond the Hills. "'Listen,' he said, and he read in English. "'Compensation is the other name for God. How often is it that those whom disease or accident have robbed of active life find greater inner rejoicing and a larger spiritual itinerary?' It would seem that withdrawal from the ruder activities gives a clearer seeing. Also for these, so often, is granted a greater love, which comes of the consecration of other lives to theirs. And these, too, have their reward, for they are less encompassed by the vanities of the world, having the joy of self-sacrifice. He looked at Rosalie with an unnatural brightness in his eyes, and she smiled at him now, and stroked his hand. "'It has all been compensation to me,' he said after a moment. "'You have been a good daughter to me, Rosalie.' She shook her head and smiled. "'Good fathers think they have good daughters,' she answered, choking back a sob. 
He closed the book and let it lie upon the coverlet. "'I will sleep now,' he said, and turned on his side. She arranged his pillow and adjusted the bedclothes to his comfort. "'Good night,' he said, as with a faint hand he drew her head down and kissed her. "'Good girl, good night.' She patted his hand. "'It is not night yet, father.' He was already half asleep. "'Good night,' he said again, and fell into a deep sleep. She sat down by the window, in her hand the book he had laid down. A hundred thoughts were busy in her brain, of her father, of the woman who had just left, of her lover over the hills. The woman's voice came to her again, a far-off mockery. She opened the book mechanically and turned over the pages. Presently her eyes were riveted to a page. On it was written the word, Kathleen. For a moment she sat transfixed. The word Kathleen and the haunting voice became one, and her mind ran back to the day when she had said to Charlie, "'Who is Kathleen?' She sprang to her feet. What should she do? Follow the woman? Find out who and what she was? Go to the young surgeon who had accompanied them, ask him who she was, and so learn the clue to the mystery concerning her lover? In the midst of her confusion, she became sharply conscious of two things, the approach of Mrs. Flynn and her father's heavy breathing. Dropping the book, she leaned over her father's bed and looked closely at him. Then she turned to the frightened and anxious Mrs. Flynn. "'Go for the priest,' she said. "'He is dying.' "'I'll send someone. I'm staying here by you, darling,' said the old woman, and hurried to the room of the young surgeon for a messenger. As the sun went down, the cripple went out upon a long journey, alone. End of chapter 47 Chapter 48 Where the Tree of Life is Blooming As Charlie walked the bank of the great river by the city where his old life lay dead, he struggled with the new life which, long or short, must henceforth belong to the village of the woman he loved. But as he fought with himself in the long night watch it was borne in upon him that though he had been shown the promised land, he might never find there a habitation and a home. The hymn he had mockingly sung the night he had been done to death at the Cote d'Orion sang in his senses now, an ever-present mockery. On the other side of Jordan, in the sweet fields of Eden, where the tree of life is blooming, there is rest for you. There is rest for the weary, there is rest for the weary, there is rest for the weary there is rest for you. In the uttermost corner of his intelligence he felt with sure prescience that, however befalling, the end of all was not far off. In the exercise of the new faculties, which had more to do with the soul than with reason, he now believed what he could not see, and recognized what was not proved. Labor of the hand, trouble, sorrow, and perplexity, charity and humanity, had cleared and simplified his life, had sweetened his intelligence and taken the place of ambition. He saw life now through the lens of personal duty, which required that the thing nearest to one's hand should be done first. But as foreboding pressed upon him, there came the thought of what should come after, to Rosalie. His thoughts took a practical form. Her good was uppermost in his mind. All Rosalie had to live on was her salary as postmistress for it was in everyone's knowledge that the little else she had was being sacrificed to her father's illness. 
Suppose, then, that through illness or accident she lost her position. What could she do? He might leave her what he had, but what had he? Enough to keep her for a year or two, no more. All his earnings had gone to the poor and the suffering of Chaudier. There was one way. It had suggested itself to him so often in Chaudier, and had been one of the two reasons for bringing him here. There were his dead mother's pearls and one thousand dollars in notes behind a secret panel in the White House on the Hill, in this very city where he was. The pearls were worth over ten thousand dollars. In all there would be eleven thousand, enough to secure Rosalie from poverty. What should Kathleen do with his mother's pearls, even if they were found by her? What should she do with his money? Did she not loathe his memory? Had not all his debts been paid? These pearls and this money were all his own. But to get them, to go now to the White House on the hill, to face that old life even for an hour, a knocking at the door of a haunted house, he shrank from the thought. He would have to enter the place like a thief in the night. Yet for Rosalie he must take the risk. He must go. End of chapter 48 Chapter 49 The Open Gate It was a still night, and the moon, delicately bright, gave forth that radiance which makes spiritual to the eye the coarsest thing. Inside the white house on the hill all was dark. Sleep had settled on it long before midnight, for on the morrow its master and mistress hoped to make a journey to the village of Chaudier, where the passion play was being performed by habitants and Indians. The desire to see the play had become an infatuation in the minds of the two, eager for some interest to relieve the monotony of a happy life. But as all slept, a figure in the dress of a habitant moved through the passages of the house stealthily, yet with an assurance unusual in the thief or housebreaker. In the darkest passages his step was sure, and his hand fastened on latch or doorknob with perfect precision. He came at last into a large hallway flooded by the moon, pale, watchful, his beard frosted by the light. In the stillness of his tread and the composed sorrow of his face he seemed like one long dead who revisits the glimpses of the moon. At last he entered a room the door of which stood wide open. In this room had been begotten or had had exercise, whatever of him was worth approving in the days before he died. It was a place of books and statues and tapestry, and the dark oak was nobly smutched of time. This somber oaken wall had been handed down through four generations from the man's great-grandfather. The breath of generations had steeped it in human association. Entering, he turned for an instant with clinched hands to look at another door across the hall. Behind that door were two people, who despised his memory, who conspired to forget his very name. This house was the woman's, for he had given it to her the day he died, but that she could live there with all the old associations, with memories that, however bitter, however shaming, had a sort of sacredness, struck into his soul with a harrowing pain. There she was with whom he had spared, himself, whose happiness had laid in his hands, and he had given it to her yet her very existence robbed himself of happiness, and made sorrowful a life dearer than his own. Kathleen lay asleep in that room. He fancied he could hear her breathing, and, by the hospital on the hill, up beyond the point of pines, 
in a little cottage where he could see from the great window, lay Rosalie with sleepless eyes and wan cheeks, longing for morning and the stir of life to help her forget. For Rosalie he had come to this house once more. For her sake he was revisiting this torture chamber, from which he knew he must go again, blanched and shaken, as a man goes from a tomb where his dead lie unforgiving. He shut his teeth, went swiftly across the room, and beside a great carved oak table touched the hidden spring in the side of it. The spring snapped. The panel creaked a little and drew back. It seemed to him that the noise he made must be heard in every part of the house, so sensitive was his ear, so deep was the silence on which the sounds had broken. He turned round to the doorway to listen before he put his hand within the secret place. There was no sound. He turned his attention to the table. Drawing forth two packets with a gasp of relief, he put them in his pocket and, with extreme care, proceeded to close the panel. By rubbing the edges of the wood with grease from a candle on the table, he was able to readjust the panel in silence. But as the spring came home, he became suddenly conscious of a presence in the room. A shiver passed through him. He turned round softly, quickly. He was in the shadow and near great window curtains, and his fingers instinctively clutched them as he saw a figure in white at the door of the room. Slowly, strangely deliberate, the figure moved further into the room. Charlie's breath stopped. He felt his face flush, and a strange weakness came on him. There before him stood Kathleen. She was in her nightgown, and she stood still, as though listening. Yet as Charlie looked closer, he realized that it was an unconscious passive listening, and that she did not know he was there. Her mind only was listening. She was asleep. Was it possible that his very presence in the house had touched some old note of memory which, automatically responding, had carried her from her bed in this somnambulistic trance? That subtle telegraphy between our subconscious cells which we cannot reduce to a law, yet alarming us at times, announced to Kathleen's mind, independent of the waking senses, the presence once familiar to this house for so many years. In her sleep, she had involuntarily responded to the call of Charlie's approach. Once in the past, the night her uncle died, she had walked in her sleep, and the memory of this flashed upon Charlie now. Silently he came closer to her. The moonlight shone on her face. He could see plainly she was asleep. His position was painful and perilous. If she waked, the shock to herself would be great. If she waked and saw him, what disaster might not occur? Yet he had no agitation now, only clearness of mind and a curious sense of confusion that he should see her en déshabille, that old fastidious sense mingling with the feeling that she was now a stranger to him, and that waking she would fly embarrassed from his presence as he was ready to fly from hers. He was about to steal to the door and escape before she waked, but she turned round, moved through the doorway, and glided down the hall. He followed silently. She moved to the staircase, then slowly down it, and through a passage to a morning-room where, opening a pair of French windows, she passed out onto the lawn. He followed not more than a dozen paces behind her. His safety lay in getting outside, where he could easily hide among the bushes, should someone else appear, and an alarm be raised. 
She crossed the lawn swiftly, a white, ghost-like figure. In the middle of the lawn she stopped short once, as if in doubt what to do, as a thought-reader pauses in his search for the mental scent again ere he rushes upon the subject of his search with the certainty of instinct. Presently she moved on, going directly towards a gate that opened out on the cliff above the river. In Charlie's day this gate had been often used, for it gave upon four steep wooden steps leading to a narrow shelf of rock below. From the edge of this cliff a rope-ladder dropped fifty feet to the river. For years he had used this rope-ladder to get down to his boat, and often, when they were first married, Kathleen used to come and watch him descend, and sometimes, just at the very first, would descend also. As he stole into the grounds this evening he had noticed, however, that the rope-ladder was gone, and that new steps were being built. He had also mechanically observed that the gate was open. For an instant he watched her slowly moving towards the gate. At first he did not realize the situation. Suddenly her danger flashed upon him. Passing through the gateway she must fall over the cliff. Her life was in his hands. He could rush forward swiftly and close the gate, then, raising an alarm, get away before he was seen, or he could escape now. What had he to do with her? A weird, painful suggestion crept into his brain. He was not responsible for her, and he was responsible for a woman up there by the hospital, whose home was the valley of the Chaudiere. If Kathleen were gone, what barrier would there be between him and Rosalie? What had he to do with this strange disposition of events? Kathleen was never absent from her church twice on Sundays. She was devoted to work of all sorts for the church on weekdays. Where was her intervening personal providence? If providence permitted her to die, well, she had had two years of happiness with the man she loved, at some expense to himself. Was it not fair that Rosalie should have her share? Had he the right to call upon Rosalie for constant self-sacrifice, when, by shutting his eyes now, by being dead to Kathleen and her need, as he was dead to the world he once knew, the way would be clear to marry Rosalie? Dead, he was dead to the world and to Kathleen. Should his ghost interpose between her and the death now within two score feet of her? Who could know? It was grim, it was awful, but was it not a wild kind of justice? Who could blame? It was the old Charlie Steele the Charlie Steele of the courtroom, who argued back humanity and the inherent rightness of things. But it was only a moment's pause. The thoughts flashed by like the lightning impressions of a dream, and a voice said in his ear, the voice of the new Charlie with a conscience, Save her! Save her! Even as he was conscious of another presence on the lawn, he rushed forward noiselessly, stealing between Kathleen and the gate, she was within five feet of it, he closed and locked it. Then, with a quick glance at her sleeping face, it was engraven on his memory ever after like a dead face in a coffin, he ran along the fence among the shrubbery. A man not fifty feet away called to him. "'Hush! She is asleep!' Charlie whispered, and disappeared. It was Fearing himself who saw this deed which saved Kathleen's life. Awaking and not finding her, he had glanced towards the window and had seen her on the lawn. He had rushed down to her, in time to see her saved by a strange bearded man in habit and dress. 
his one glance at the man's face as it turned towards him produced an extraordinary effect upon his mind not soon to be dispelled a haunting ghost-like apparition which kept reminding him of something or somebody he could not tell what or whom the whispering voice and the breathless words hush she is asleep repeated themselves over and over again in his brain as taking kathleen's hand he led her unresisting and still sleeping back to her room in agitated thankfulness he resolved not to speak of the event to kathleen or to anyone else lest it should come to her ears and frighten her he would however keep a sharp lookout for the man who had saved her life and would reward him duly the face of the bearded habitant came between him and his sleep meanwhile this disturber of a woman's dreams and a man's sleep was hurrying to an inn in the town by the waterside where he met another habitant with a team of dogs joe portugais joe had not been able to bear the misery of suspense and anxiety and had come seeking him there was little speech between them you have not been found out monsieur was joe's anxious question no no but i have had a bad night joe get the dogs together a little later as charlie made ready to go back to chaudier joe said you look as if you had a bad dream monsieur with the river rustling by and the trees stirring in the first breath of dawn charlie told joe what had happened for a moment the murderer did not speak or stir for a struggle was going on in his breast also then he stooped quickly caught his companion's hand and kissed it i could not have done it monsieur he said hoarsely they parted joe to remain behind as they had agreed to be near rosalie if needed charlie to return to the valley of the chaudiere end of chapter forty nine recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com